I'm Rasa Kay, and I'm talking with cardiologist Dr. Ketan Gala at Deborah Heart and Lung Center in the heart of New Jersey. And of course, we're talking about the heart. We've been hearing an awful lot about um, health issues and things that can contribute negatively or positively to how populations can, can face the novel coronavirus. Yeah. If your ticker is not working properly, that's a chink in the armor that, that could have extraordinary ramifications when you're dealing with a new illness. So heart disease. So when people think of heart disease, they tend to think about blockages, um, and for good reason. I mean, coronary artery disease, blockages forming in the arteries of the heart, uh, it's incredibly common. Um, there's something like 800,000 heart attacks every year. Um, something like 600,000 stents are placed in the heart arteries every year, and about 18 million adults have some type of blockage. There's also congestive heart failure, and that's where people's hearts don't squeeze properly or don't relax properly. They can fill up with fluid, and they need to take water pills to keep that down. Um, sometimes people have valve disease. There's four valves in the heart that separate the different chambers, and sometimes the valves don't open properly. Sometimes they leak. Um, people can have arrhythmias, where the heart gets too fast or too slow. It can even stop. And, uh, of course, a big part of cardiology is prevention, uh, making sure that people have their blood pressure under control, cholesterol under control, diagnosing and treating high sugar or diabetes, um, not smoking, regularly exercising, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's like all roads lead to the heart in some way or another. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, heart disease is incredibly common, and it is a... Unfortunately, uh, I think for many years, decades, it was the number one uh, leading cause of death in this country and very important, like you said, in these times to continue to take care of our hearts. So warning signs, risk factors, because you, you did quite the rundown just now of, of mechanical issues, structural problems in the heart, um, electrical, the arrhythmias and things, that these are, are so many ways your heart could be burdened so many different disease processes that can affect the heart's function. So warning signs and risk factors, many of them are similar for all of the things you talked about. They, they absolutely can be. And the traditional th symptoms that we think about, chest pain, pressure, heaviness or tightness, either at rest or when you're exerting yourself, is usually a marker for having a blockage or having a heart attack. But the majority of people don't have those. So uh, you might get short of breath, sweaty, um, have uh, pain in the shoulder or the neck or the jaw down the left arm. Um, some people get nauseated uh, or vomit or have severe indigestion. All of these can be a sign of a heart attack. Um, but uh, you can also get short of breath, sometimes at rest or sometimes with activity if you have congestive heart failure or arrhythmias. Um, a sensation that you're having palpitations, that the heart is racing or skipping beats, um, or of course passing out. These are all concerning signs for arrhythmias. Uh, and then developing swelling in the legs uh, can definitely be a marker for having congestive heart failure. Some of these symptoms can be different, though, between men and women. I mean, are some symptoms more common to one gender or the other? I think, uh, by and large, men tend to have more of the classic pain, pressure, sort of heaviness in their chest. Uh, and it was thought that women more often than not have more of the nausea and the indigestion and shortness of breath. I think more recent research has sort of questioned whether that's accurate or not. But I think regardless, if you have any of the above, uh, you should be seeking medical attention. Exactly. Because even though we're very lung-focused these days, it could be a heart issue. Absolutely. Okay. So again, we're 
I mean, it's like the elephant in the room, COVID. Can you talk about how COVID or other viruses can affect the body specific to our pump, the heart? Absolutely. Um, so luckily, the majority of viruses do not affect the heart. There are a few of them that can cause inflammation, either of the muscle of the heart uh, or the lining on the outside of the heart. Um, and that's a situation called pericarditis or myocarditis. It's rare uh, and it's usually fairly benign, meaning people recover from it just well. Novel coronavirus uh, is a little bit of a different beast. And um, some of the initial reports uh, that came out of Japan were that it was uh, frequently associated with heart attacks or myocarditis, um, uh, the inflammation of the heart, and it was causing people to develop um, congestive heart failure rapidly. And I think as the virus spread across Europe and into America, we're seeing that that's less common, uh, but it can certainly happen. And it's typically amongst the sickest patients, those that are hospitalized, and particularly those who end up in the intensive care unit. Uh, they can end up having those findings of myocarditis, a weak heart muscle, um, and I think it remains to be seen whether they will uh, recover over time. Uh, one of the tricky things has been when somebody is that sick and contagious, we're not regularly doing the usual imaging studies that we would do. Uh, so the ultrasounds of the heart, the echocardiograms, and of course CAT scans and MRIs of the heart and cardiac catheterizations are just not happening as frequently. So we don't know, you know, uh, how often patients are having this and how readily they're uh, recovering. Um, the other thing we're seeing in the sickest of these COVID patients is that they tend to form a lot of blood clots. Clots in their legs, clots in their lungs, clots in their brains causing strokes. You can form, of course, clots in your heart or in the coronary arteries and cause heart attacks. And uh, I think the more we see this virus, the more concerning that is. We're watching real science happen. It, it's as though there hasn't been time to do the same kinds of months-long research that gets crunched into a paper that a couple of times a year there's some great big new understanding of, of something. Now it's we're, we're just peppered with this non-stop. But the clotting, if it's a blood clot, that's a potential cardiac issue, no matter what. Yeah, and it it's happens very rapidly. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen it, you know, uh, from the cases we've had here. And I think basically every hospital that's had a high burden of COVID patients has seen it. One minute the patient might be doing okay, the next minute they're having a stroke. And uh, I think we're getting much better at treating this virus. Um, and I think uh, nationwide, the average length of stay has been cut down dramatically. Patients are getting out of the hospital and we're coming up with a cocktail of medications and steroids and things to send people out on. And potent blood thinners are part of that, you know, prescription. The time frame, I think, is still a little bit up in the air, but, uh, you know, if you have the coronavirus and you are sick, you should definitely be on a strong blood thinner. All right. Well, certainly it's been a stressful time. And Absolutely. there is a stress-induced cardiomyopathy, broken heart syndrome, that is not a heart attack per se. It feels like a heart attack, it presents like a heart attack, but it's not a heart attack. Tell us about broken heart syndrome. Very interesting. The diagnosis didn't exist 30 years ago. Not because the entity didn't exist, it's because it wasn't realized. And people used to think that folks were having heart attacks and then spontaneously recovering. And uh, there was a team of Japanese researchers who figured it out. And what happens is that the heart goes from squeezing normally the tip of it stops squeezing. And in fact, when the heart is squeezing, it balloons outwards. And that looks like a traditional Japanese trap that they use to catch octopus. And that trap is called a takatsubo. 
So this traditionally was called the Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. Uh, and now it's called, you know, stress cardiomyopathy or the broken heart syndrome. And uh, for whatever reason, there has been a, a very rapid and significant increase in cases of that, probably due to the stress of the virus, potentially due to patients who get the virus. When they come into the emergency room, you cannot differentiate that from a heart attack. They are having the chest pain. They're short of breath. They're sweating. Their cardiogram looks incredibly abnormal. And usually your thought is they must go emergently for a cardiac catheterization, except when you do the catheterization, you find that they indeed have no major blockages. Oftentimes when you do the ultrasound, the pumping function of the heart looks really diminished. And of course, they have that ballooning. And you put them on appropriate medications. And the overwhelming majority of people recover after a few weeks to months. Unfortunately, there is some mortality associated with it. So it's not a completely benign condition. But whereas a heart attack in the clinical sense can cause permanent damage to the heart muscle, if you recover well from the broken heart syndrome, there is none of that similar permanent damage. Exactly. None at all. Stress and shock, though, can it cause damage to the heart? Stress has long been considered a risk factor for heart disease, and I think that was more colloquial, and it took science a long time to catch up because we weren't doing those type of studies in the 30s, 40s, 50s, but nowadays it's, it's well-known. Uh, lack of sleep, folks that work night shift, people exposed to smog or high-pollution environments, having socioeconomic stress, uh, you know, dealing with childcare or paying the bills, um, and the list goes on and on, all contribute to heart disease. Uh, the current situation we're in right now, uh, I think the anxiety level of the country has never been higher. Uh, I'm sure we will see the, the ramifications of that down the road. And heart disease is only a part of it. Um, but yes, it certainly increases your risk of having heart disease, um, not to mention psychiatric disease and other you know, issues. So we were talking about the symptom difference between men and women or perception of it or, or et cetera when uh, a heart attack is in progress. Are women or men more prone to heart disease? I think the data suggests that men are still a little bit more prone to the disease. Um, typically, I think it was thought that women really don't get as much heart disease. They do. It tends to be a five to 10 year lag, whereas men tend to develop heart disease 55. Women, it's more around 65. But eventually, by the time we're 70, you know, the numbers have evened out. The data suggests that one in a, out of every four men die of a heart, heart disease and one out of one of every five women. So still a little bit more or potentially a little bit worse in men, but both sexes definitely get a ton of heart disease. How much of heart disease is reversible? I, I think with modern medicine, the, the array of, of devices and therapies we have, most of it really is reversible or preventable. Or manageable. I mean, so you've got the three areas, though, right? Yeah. So blockages, you know, if, if it's a straightforward blockage, even if you're having a heart attack, angioplasty or stent, easy enough to, for, the, for the doctor to do, uh, and patients can do exceptionally well for a lifetime with a stent. And uh, if you have multiple stents or it's in a bad location, open-heart surgery, you know, really has become so refined, people have their open heart, you know, bypass surgery and they're home four or five days later. Um, arrhythmias, you know, ablations or pacemakers uh, or even defibrillators are readily done and people, you know, at least at Deborah, go home the same day afterwards. Um, congestive heart failure, 
gets a little bit trickier when it gets very severe. Um, but you know, the, the work being done on heart transplants or even assist pumps, um, it keeps getting better and better year after year and, and people are doing much better. Uh, valve surgery has become incredibly refined. Certain valve procedures are now being done percutaneously. Again, patients go home the next day. The old open heart where you're in the hospital and then have to go to a rehab is, is just a thing of the past. But I, I think a big part of it is prevention. So when you talk about cardiac disease and, and mortality, those are curves that are, have been significantly flattened yes. with all of the, the progress that, that we've made and we continue to make on it. If, if we, we were talking about somebody who, who, has, who is carrying a load of the results of bad habits, <laughs> how, how much can lifestyle changes turn that around? I think, you know, the case by case is different. A lot of times there is irreversible things, you know, blockages, once they form, they really don't go away. Um, arrhythmias, once they're there, it's difficult to stop that altogether. And a weak heart, you know, it's fairly difficult to get it strong again, you know, but you can. And there are people where it certainly happens. It's not, not the standard, you know. But I think for everyone else, even if you've had a lifetime of bad habits, if you're not, if you don't have the manifestations of severe heart disease, if you're not having the chest pain, the blockages, the heart failure, the arrhythmias, it's definitely never too late. I mean, you really, really, really have an opportunity to, to, to get healthy at, at any age, at any point in life. And then if you do have the interventions, medical, therapeutic, whatever, those lifestyle habits will, will yeah. reinforce everything. Exactly. Uh, so, okay, those, those habits that uh, maybe we're too stressed out to keep in mind. There are situations in people where their heart disease is to a point where it's irreversible. By and large, blockages when they form do not regress. And if, they, if you are having symptoms or having you know, heart attacks or what have you, you need to have your stent put in or have bypass surgery. Um, but arrhythmias, I mean, with, between medications and ablations, pacemakers and defibrillators, People are getting treated and doing just fine. Uh, even if you have uh, a lifetime of bad habits and haven't had any of these things develop, it's never too late to change. Uh, the American Heart Association endorses something called Life's Simple Seven. Uh, and the wonderful thing about that is that it's things that everybody can do, uh, regardless of where you live, your socioeconomic status. Um, and the list is stop smoking, eat better, get active, lose weight, manage blood pressure, control cholesterol, and reduce blood sugar. Um, and a lot of these things go hand in hand. If you exercise, if you change your diet, get more of a uh, Mediterranean type diet with smaller portions, you're gonna lose weight and that's gonna help decrease your cholesterol, your sugar, and your blood pressure. Say someone has had a, a medical or surgical intervention yeah. to uh, repair some kind of a, a cardiac issue. Can they then say, all right, that's fixed. I'm going back to my, my fatty <laughs> potato pancakes and the bacon bits. I mean, unfortunately, we see that all the time. But I would, I tell people when you have something like this happen, it should be a life-changing event. I think for a lot of people it is. You have a heart attack, um, and thankfully you get saved, and someone puts a stent in and opens up a blockage. Uh, that's just the beginning, you know. Uh, and you have that stent in your heart the rest of your life. And it means you have a disease, you know. You have the disease of atherosclerosis where arteries are attacking you and it, they're closing up when they should stay open. And uh, uh, you really have to work hard to help uh, prevent that from happening again. Um, eating better, exercising, and uh, sleeping well, and 
you know, uh, um, taking the medications as prescribed. It's all part of the uh, game plan. Exercise, heart pumping, heart pounding exercise. <laughs> Does that strengthen the heart muscle? It, it absolutely can. And the appropriate prescription that we give people is at least 30 minutes, five days a week, of something that gets the heart rate up, you know. And that means different things for different people. The older you get, uh, the less you need to get your heart rate up. Younger people, you know, you have to do a little bit more vigorous stuff to get their heart rate up. And you, we want it to get a little bit higher. But uh, I think by and large, most people can, can give 150 minutes a week. Now, all those other areas that the, the Simple 7 attaches to, I mean, you've got the blood pressure, which can be a kidney issue. Um, you've got the blood sugars, the diabetes issue, all these other things that become the phrase we've been hearing so much about, underlying conditions. What's an underlying condition as we're understanding it now? So it really can mean anything. You know, if you have high blood pressure and you go to an office to see a, a provider, you know, for whatever reason, and they ask, do you have any medical problems? You would say, I have high blood pressure and I take this medication. Um, and that becomes an underlying condition. If you've had appendicitis and you've had your appendix taken out, um, you know, that sort of becomes an underlying condition. Being without an appendix is an underlying medical condition. <laughs> but it, it's, it is on paper, but it's not something that's going to cause you issues down the road. But with this coronavirus, uh, certain medical underlying conditions are being shown to cause folks to get sicker. A vulnerability. A vulnerability. I mean, so. if, if that system is already stressed or burdened by some medical problem. That's right. That's right. So age seems to be the biggest risk factor. You know, the older you are and you get coronavirus, the more likely you are to have a bad outcome. Um, but high blood pressure, being obese, having diabetes, and certain blood types are right, right next to that. Big systemic things. Big systemic things. Has it been your perception that your patients are delaying important cardiac care because of the coronavirus pandemic? Unfortunately. Um, I think when it first came around, uh, you know, whatever it was, early to mid-March, uh, nobody really knew what to do. And the, the shelter and orders, uh, shelter in place, excuse me, orders were being uh, put out there and the lockdowns were happening. And uh, we basically went from, you know, a typical day for me in an office, uh, let's say would be seeing 25 patients in a day and we were seeing two or three and 20 people were canceling and uh, some people can go months without seeing a doc if, if they're only being seen for some fairly routine things but obviously there are people who are very sick and uh, they work hard to keep out of the hospital people that do have the blockages and the weak hearts and the arrhythmias so I think for for the first two months, somewhere between the first eight to 10 weeks, starting from March through mid-May to end of May. And this was across the country. that The office visits plummeted. The emergency room visits plummeted. Um, and that became very concerning because you expect in any population a certain percentage of people are going to have a heart attack every day, every week, every month. Um, a certain percentage of the population is going to have a stroke every day, every week, every month, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think some of the statistics were that there was a 23% drop in heart attacks, 20% drop in strokes um, in those 10 weeks. Um, and it's not as if the diseases stopped happening. So unfortunately, there was a lot of people having heart attacks, strokes, and other horrible things happened to them at home. But there was so much fear and anxiety 
over coming to the hospital or even calling 911. We saw early on when the, when the doors reopened and the shelters in place were lifted, we saw people coming in very sick who had neglected care for a while. And uh, obviously uh, the population studies that are being done showed something like uh, 87,000 excess deaths in the country over that first two months of the lockdowns. Some are definitely due to COVID and a lot were due to neglected medical care. What would you tell a patient who, who is in your care who may not be in, in a pre-crisis state but needs to have their care managed? So, you know, fairly early on we've adopted telemedicine and there is video conferencing. Now, not of course, not everybody has a smartphone or uh, a tablet where they can do video conferencing and then we transitioned um, to allowing us as providers to use telephone calls, a simple telephone call appointment with your with your provider can really help out if you are feeling short of breath or if you are feeling sick. Um, and of course, in the offices now, we've gotten used to this. So, in terms of masking, hand washing, distancing, keeping the rooms incredibly clean, and uh, I think the level of sanitization has gone up tremendously. So the the, the telemedicine appointments are, are great, but you know if you if you are sick, and of, and of course, um, if you have a lot of chronic cardiac conditions, that, that sometimes just doesn't suffice, and you need to come in for appointments. And the nice thing is, we've had months to adjust to this, um, and it's not just our offices, it's offices across the country where we are now set up. Um, we're, we're masking, uh, hand washing regularly, um, probably too regularly, uh, keeping everything sanitized and clean, we're distancing, uh, and it's, it's safe. Um, it's safe to come in, and it's you should not neglect your cardiac health. I mean, if you are a patient who's got X, Y, and Z, and if you've got the underlying conditions, and you have the need for regular blood work and imaging studies and appointments, stop putting it off. So if you are somebody who's having symptoms um, or not feeling well or feel like you should be seen by a cardiologist, or if your primary care provider is saying you should be seen by a cardiologist, stop ignoring your health. There's more going on in the world than just COVID, and heart disease doesn't stop just for a virus. So definitely find a way to get checked out and, and feel rest assured that uh, our offices are safe and we're taking every precaution possible. And you can find more information on our website, www.demanddebora.org. I'm Rasa Kay, and I've been talking with cardiologist Dr. Ketan Gala at Deborah Heart and Lung Center. If you'd like to find out more about reversing heart disease, managing heart disease, and most importantly, preventing it, do check out the website, www.demanddebora.org.